Let's bow our heads for prayer. I want to use a prayer from the psalm today, acutely aware of this moment of what might be called multi-generational ministry and uh, of my own age, but it's also uh, a verse that God has impressed on me uh, that I'm to hold on to as a description for the rest of my life. So let's pray. So even to old age and gray hairs, O God, do not forsake me until I proclaim your might to another generation, your power to all those to come. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We had a really interesting discussion among my staff this week. I asked at lunch, how do you get your news? And the answers were as varied as the number of people we had there. And I won't identify how different staff members got news, but if you're ever in a situation and you don't know what to have a conversation about, I recommend that as an opening question. How do you get your news? A couple of things that came up in the news uh, this week that I, I tracked, uh, one through the web and one on the radio, were stories of people in trouble out in the cold. Maybe you're familiar with a couple of them. In North Carolina, there was a three-year-old who got lost, separated from his friends out in the woods, and they looked for him. He, he got lost on a Tuesday. He, uh, they looked for him in the midst of freezing weather. The conditions got so bad that they had to call off anyone who was looking for him. They assumed that he would not make it. But on Thursday, they found him. He'd been crying, somebody heard him, he's stuck in a thorn bush, cold and soaked, but safe, rescued. But there was a similar story of a homeless man, I believe in Wisconsin, during that cold wave last week, who was determined to sleep in his car, even as the weather went down well below zero. And there were volunteers out looking for people in those kind of situations. And a woman came across this man. The car was no longer running, so there was no heat in it. And he was determined to stay in his car. He did not want to leave. And as the woman was describing the story, she essentially forced him out of the car, practically dragged him, finally got him to heat and to safety. But he preferred his freedom to even life itself. I think of the bravery of that volunteer and the frustration. The reason I mention those stories is that what we see in the gospel this morning is Jesus on a rescue mission, but with people who refuse it. I want to tackle a painful subject this morning, the fact that people can reject the gospel and in the process reject us who are to be bringing the gospel. And I want to look at uh, three things. Why? is the gospel rejected? 
What should we do when it is rejected? And what should we not do when it's rejected? Why is it rejected? What should we do when it's rejected? What should we not do? Well, why is it rejected goes back to the first part of Luke chapter 4. And if you've got a Bible, I encourage you to turn to that. As Jesus comes to his home uh, town, Nazareth, where he grew up, his home synagogue, he's already got a reputation of being a healer and a teacher. And now he's making a hometown appearance. He does something remarkable, and, I'm, and perhaps you've heard this before. I'm not going to stay here too long. But they hand him the scroll. He turns to Isaiah 61, which is a description of the servant of the Lord. And he reads this. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. We're going to be anointing people today with oil as a sign of the spirit. To proclaim good news to the poor, he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That is great news. That is tremendous news. Except that he adds a line, or he sort of, his interpretation of this reading all of a sudden drives people crazy. And all he says is, today, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, you've been waiting for the servant of God. You've been waiting for the Messiah to come. This was the expectation. And what he's essentially saying is, I'm it. That's what he's doing. Spirit of the Lord, he makes it personal. Spirit of the Lord is upon me. It's fulfilled in me. And the people just can't handle it. Now, what's going on there? I think what's going on is they're rejecting the fact, not only of who Jesus is, but if you look at that passage, it's a, it's a diagnosis, diagnosis of our spiritual, as well as sometimes physical condition. That if we're going to accept the gospel, we have to accept some things about ourselves that we don't want to admit. That we are poor. We're lacking, spiritually and otherwise. That we're captives. Scripture teaches us that we're captive to sin, that we're blind. Revelation, uh, when uh, Jesus is talking to one of the churches, he says, you think, you think you've got it all made, but you're poor, pitiable, and blind. Most of us don't want to be told that we're blind, that we don't know what's going on, that we can't see where we're going, that we're oppressed spiritually, and that we need God's favor. In other words, we don't like the description of our situation. And the people in Nazareth didn't like it, particularly when Jesus says, speaking of people like that, you're it. I'm the one coming to help you, but you're in this condition. No, we just don't like that. Because if we're in that situation and we're rescued, then we are beholden to the person who's rescued us. And instead, Jesus is actually quoting what he's sort of hearing among the crowds. Instead, they say, no, we've got your number. You don't fit the conditions here to be a Messiah. In fact, we've seen you since you were a kid. We know who your dad was. You couldn't possibly be that person. And we couldn't possibly be in that condition. 
And Jesus, instead of saying, oh, I'm so sorry, I understand your confusion, let me tell you what's going on, he says, you know what, this is the way it works. A prophet's not accepted in his own country. And then he gives examples of how prophets reached out to Gentiles around them. And what he's really saying to them is, you're just not in any condition to hear. In fact, your enemies do better listening than you do. And that's not a particularly flattering thing to say. <laughs> but the bottom line is that people reject the gospel when they have an exalted view of themselves and a diminished view of Jesus. And often it's because there's an area of their life that they don't want to change. Out of curiosity, this is not uh, going to affect your career. Uh, out of curiosity, how many of you know the name Aldous Huxley? Anybody know that name? A lot of you do. Wrote a book called Brave New World. He was an author, uh, primarily in the 30s and 40s. Um, interestingly enough, uh, some of you may know he died on the same day as John F. Kennedy and C.S. Lewis. Uh, and there's actually a book, an imaginary conversation among the three of them uh, on their way to heaven. I recommend that to you sometimes. It's between heaven and hell, I think, is the name of the book. Uh, so Aldous Huxley, well known. Toward the end of his life, he admits why he does, didn't want to believe the gospel. Most people don't have that kind of uh, transparency. He talked about why he wanted to see that the world had no meaning. Here, here we go. It's a long quote, but I think you'll track it. It's fascinating. He said, I had motives for not wanting the world to have a meaning and consequently assumed it had none. In other words, I didn't want it to, so it didn't. And I was able, without any difficulty, to find satisfying reasons for this assumption. He says, the philosopher who finds no meaning in the world is not concerned exclusively with a problem in pure metaphysics. It's not just philosophy. He's also concerned to prove that there is no valid reason why he personally should not do as he wants to do. Or to put it another way, we accept our philosophies because they match up with our desires. For myself, as no doubt for most of my friends, the philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation from a certain system of morality. We objected to the morality because it interfered with our sexual freedom. And he went on to say the supporters of this system, this system uh, of morality, claimed that it embodied the meaning, the Christian meaning, they insisted, of the world. There was one admirably, admirably simple method of confuting these people, these Christians, and justifying ourselves in our erotic revolt. We would deny that the world had any meaning whatsoever. See what he's getting at? He's saying, looking back, I, I, I said, there's no meaning. There's no God. There's no Christian morality. He said, but looking back, it was simply because it gave me the freedom to do what I wanted to do especially in the sexual area. The gospel threatens our autonomy, our running of our own lives. Now, before we're too harsh on those who don't believe, please remember that we reject the gospel every time we choose to be selfish or unforgiving or 
we lie or we sin in any way. We are very good at rejecting the gospel when it gets in the way of what we want to do. But larger picture, the reason that we get rejected, the gospel gets rejected, Jesus gets rejected, is because it gets in the way of what people want to do. So in 1 John 3, John says, do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. So why is it rejected? Because it gets in our way. What to do when the gospel is rejected? Notice what happens later on in verse 29. They rose up and drove Jesus out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Now, that's something of a miracle, but I want you to stop and think about this. Think of who the witnesses are here. First of all, it's clearly some of the disciples. In other words, this is not just something they heard. This is something they watched. Jesus starts out well. The hometown boy is ready to preach. People are gathered together. Undoubtedly, his mother was there. His family was there. This was an exciting big day. And everything goes south. And they're ready to kill him, and they take him out. Can you imagine the emotional turmoil you're going through as one of his disciples or one of his family members? They're about to throw him off a cliff, and something happens. We don't know exactly what. It could have just been miraculous protection. It could have been that they just were ashamed. Here, it's the Sabbath. What are we doing killing somebody? One guess is that you had a certain amount of uh, length you could go uh, on a, for a Sabbath day's journey and, and not to go too far to protect the day of rest. And what had happened is that when they got to the cliff, they, 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 either Jesus said it or they recognized they'd gone further than they were allowed to go. And because of that, Jesus kind of calls them on it and just walks away. It's like, you shouldn't be out here. That's just a guess, but it, I think it has some validity. But Jesus is totally rejected by the people who should have accepted him. But he seems to expect it. He's not caught off guard by it. There were people there who were accepting him, his, his disciples, and people there who were rejecting him. But what do we do in the midst of rejection? Because if we're faithful to the gospel, we will have moments like this. Hopefully not a cliff involved, but rejection. No longer affirmed, no longer accepted, at least for a period of time. But what do you do? You keep on going. Notice that it does not end his ministry. Jesus says, well, that's it, I'm done. Instead, it says, in verse 31, he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching there on the Sabbath, and they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. He keeps on going with proclamation. And even though he knows there's a final rejection ahead, he keeps on going. Mark 8, 31, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Knowing that, he still keeps going. Out of love for us, he faces rejection so that we will be accepted. 
even the rejection of the cross. So when we're rejected, we must keep going. That's what to do. But what about what not to do in the face of rejection? First of all, don't be surprised. It's the nature of the gospel, and Jesus tells us over and over again it's going to happen. Secondly, don't assume it's your fault, that you somehow did it wrong. You somehow said the wrong thing. 1 Peter 3 says, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, in other words, he's assuming this is going to happen, you will be blessed, have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Don't be surprised, don't assume it's your fault. On the other hand, don't lash out. Peter goes on to say in 1 Peter 3, In your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Even if they're resisting you, even if they're insulting you, even as they reject you, you, that does not give permission to fight back. We're to respond with gentleness and respect. Don't be personally affronted. It's normal. But also don't think that this is the end of the story for that person, even though they've rejected you. One statistic, and I, I, I'd have to, I know where it came from, but I, I haven't looked it up, but something like 24 people witness to somebody before they come to faith in some form or another, which means the first 23 generally feel rejected and feel like failures. Interestingly enough, here's Nazareth rejecting Jesus, but later in history, Nazareth becomes a major Christian city and has the largest church in the Middle East. This experience, this day of rejection, is not the end of the story for Nazareth. In my own personal life, for years, I was witnessing to my dad. Uh, and I never thought I was getting anywhere. I got him Christian books. Uh, one day, I came to the guest room and looked in the guest room. And all the books I'd given him were in one little bookshelf. And I, and I assumed they had never been opened. I made the mistake of mentioning that in a sermon. And I discovered later that my dad was actually getting my sermon tapes. And he wrote a little note saying, I just want you to know I've read all the books. And at age 84, I baptized him. Don't give up. Even though it may look like a rejection from that person, it's not necessarily the end of the story for them. Don't be afraid to speak. We're going to have public vows today in confirmation. And the psalm, it says, my mouth will tell of your righteous acts, of your deeds of salvation all the day, for their number is past my knowledge. Amen. We're to be talking about the righteous deeds of the Lord, obviously the cross and the resurrection at the center, but things that the Lord is doing in our lives, the ways in which we've watched him work, ways we see him operating in the scriptures. Those being confirmed today are basically going to say, they, they do believe in Jesus. Just a real short answer. But I want you to come up with 
a short testimony, maybe not necessarily a conversion, but something the Lord has done with you in your mind. Now, one, to give you an example of shortness, um, the blind man in John 9, he says, one thing I do know that though I was blind, now I see. Now that's a short testimony. <laughs> if I had to give a part of my testimony, not the whole thing, it would go something like this. I thought I had it all, but Jesus came and showed me it wasn't enough and that he alone knew the better way. That would be a significant part of my testimony. So think what you would say in one sentence, something the Lord's done for you or how he caught you, but I mean a short sentence, one deed of the Lord or one action of the Lord. Just take a moment, just be silent and think, okay, what's one short thing I could say to somebody? So we'll be just silent for a minute. Okay, now I'm going to make this easy for you. Rather than proclaiming it out on the street after church, I want you to turn to a person next to you and tell them that one sentence or two of what you would say. And if you don't have anything, you can say, I couldn't think of anything. That's fine. Uh, this will be easier for the extroverts than the introverts, but I know you can do it. Take a minute. Okay, I, I should have been clear. It was short sentence, not life story. Just, um. <laughs> apparently I touched a nerve up here. Um. Now I want you to be praying that the Lord will give you an opportunity to say that to somebody this week. And if you didn't have anything to say, you can say what the other person just told you. I was in church, and I heard a great, a, a great testimony. So it's a win-win. But it's what I want you to remember from today. Some of you will have the experience of sharing it and be rejected. Some of you will have the experience of being accepted for sharing it you're right in the normal range for what it means to be a Christian in the world. But whatever you do, keep going. We are surrounded by people lost in the cold who, like that little boy, 
want to get home if someone will show them the way. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father, when we were lost, when we were out in the cold, when we had no hope, you brought the gospel to us through people who were willing to be rejected. because they cared for us by your grace. We pray for opportunities this week to say something about you to the people around us, to perhaps to believers who need encouragement or unbelievers who need challenge. We pray that we would do it with gentleness, but that by your Holy Spirit, it would be part of the process of drawing them to yourself. Help us to ignore their excuses and instead to have confidence in the truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.